80. Turn your Bible to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. There's a psalm for every human circumstance, and you may have already discovered that in your in your because I was looking around tonight and we it just looks to me like we have a lot of experienced Christians here tonight. I was noticing that, and I was thinking, I had one of those little weak moments when I was looking around and thinking, what do I have to tell these people? Because they've, they've been around the horn a few times with the Lord. You love the Psalms already, so we're going to talk about that. Psalm, but there's a Psalm for every circumstance. For instance, when the storms are brewing, you might want to read Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord... O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Now you're looking for inspiration to see how beautiful and how magnificent and how powerful God is. And so the psalmist says, how about the picture of a storm? The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And His temple, everyone says, glory. Amen? The Lord sat enthroned in the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. And the Lord will bless His people with peace. So storms, they frighten us sometimes. And other times they just inspire us with the, with the, with the might and the power and the majesty of God. They humble us. And uh, tonight I was inspired. We'll see if this works. Now you be good to me because I want to sing part of my message tonight. So. In the dark of the midnight Have I oft hid my face While the storm howls above me And there's no hiding place Mid the crash of the thunder Precious Lord, hear my cry Keep me safe Till the storm passes by, till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand. In the hollow of my hand, keep me safe till the storm passes by. Many times Satan whispers, there is no need to try. For there's no end of sorrow, there's no hope by and by. But I know Thou art with me, and tomorrow I'll rise where the storms never darken the skies. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. When the long night has ended and the storms come no more, let me stand in Thy presence on that bright, peaceful shore. In that land 
where the tempest never comes. Lord, may I dwell with Thee when the storm passes by. Till the storm passes over, till the thunder sounds no more, till the clouds roll forever from the sky. Hold me fast, let me stand in the hollow of thy hand. Keep me safe till the storm passes Aren't psalms and songs a comfort to the soul? Don't they just do something for you? Nothing else can do. God knew that. And in the heart of the Old Testament, he embedded, thank you, Peggy, so much, and with singing, no practice, no rehearsal. In the heart of the Old Testament, God gave us 150 beautiful songs for the heart. And God's people have had these songs in common for centuries, their faith has been strengthened. Their intimacy with God has been informed by, by the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms in five books. And you can kind of tell the divisions of the books of the Psalms because at the end of each of the divisions is a benediction. The Psalms have been called the heart of the Old Testament. And my goal tonight is just to encourage you, if, you, if this isn't already true about you, is to encourage you even more to make the Psalms a part of your life, a, a, a heart companion for all of your life. And you will notice that, you know, when you sing a hymn, sometimes you'll sing a hymn and it won't be that meaningful to you. And then you'll have a circumstance come in your life and that hymn will just be rich with meaning and you will always associate that lesson God taught you or that circumstance you went through with that song. And it's like a certain smell will bring back memories to you. So a certain song will bring comfort and encouragement or truth to your heart. And this is the way God intended for the Psalms to work uh, for us. They're, they're the poems of God. Now, in our family, we were taught uh, years ago, and maybe a lot of you were too, to read the Psalms every day. And so as a family, one of the consistent devotional things that we've done, and the kids that have married and moved away will often talk to me, and they'll say they still will often do this, is we'll read the psalm that corresponds with the day, and then go 30 forward and read that psalm and 30 forward. You read five psalms in one day, and then you're all reading the same psalm on the same day. It's a little bit like having a lover that's far away from you, and then you talk to them and you realize that you were looking at the same moon and your hearts are knit together because of that. God's people are that way. We have the Word of God and our hearts are knit together in love with, to God and our hearts are knit together in love for one another with this common experience of the Psalms of God, the songs of the heart that God has given to us. And songs are very, very powerful. This is why the Lord gave us a book of Psalms, a book of songs, because of their power. If you think about it, let's just say we were trying to inspire a dad to go home from the office. Let's say this guy's a workaholic and he's always at the office and he really needs to go home and he needs to spend time with his little ones there. Well, we could give him a set of statistics. We could talk about fatherless America and the likelihood of all kinds of bad things happening if he doesn't go home. And that might convince him. Or we could turn the radio on and we could play that old Harry Chapin song, The Cat's in the Cradle. And then he would go home, wouldn't he? You know the song? You want me to sing that one to you? No. Songs are very powerful. That particular song, that secular song, I think was a very, very powerful and informed kind of some thinking, secular thinking about family. Guy was the father of 11 children who, wrote that, who sang that song. Now, the, the songs cover the full range of human emotions and human experiences. As we mentioned, a psalm, even though it's short, it's usually reflective of an experience that, that might have taken a long time to come to maturity. So in other words, you read a psalm and it begins kind of badly and it ends in this soaring praise to God. You ever notice that, how the psalms will work? And you'll think, wow, the guy did that really fast. It's like a 30-minute sitcom. He went from a, you know, this kind of inexplicable difficulty to always praising the Lord at the end and it was just in 7 or 15 verses. But the psalm usually is 
perhaps a person looking back on their experience with God and remembering their difficulty and remembering the angst or the pain of their soul or their betrayal and then thinking about how God informs that and, and that being Godward or theocentric and then, and then ending in praise. And so in other words, the psalm is short, but the experience that the psalm is describing is usually a longer thing. And that's one of the things we want to keep in mind when we read the psalms. The psalms are wonderful because for simple people like us, they're very concrete and they're not abstract. They give us pictures. And we love pictures. That is why you have a storytelling pastor. It's because I believe... You know, we could just like give you statistics all day long, but I believe deeply that God has made our hearts to work in vivid pictures, in narratives, in stories, in embellished language, in poetry, and in Proverbs. The Bible is full of that. And so that's why we do that. And that's why God gave us a book of Psalms. Now, the the Psalms are real world, and they explore the full orbit of human conditions but what's interesting about that is they take all of the full orbit of human conditions and they, they, they relate them to God. Every psalm does this. There are no exceptions. In other words, they got, the psalms are, here's big word, ready? Big word warning coming. Theocentric. They're God-centered. They don't all start that way. They often start with a human emotion or the crying human need. Oh God, where are you when I need you? Why is it that I cry out and you don't answer me? The psalm may start like that, but it will not end like that. It will be theocentric. It will take you from where you are and it will, t- it will tell you where God is in that. And this is so desperately what our culture needs. Now, you folks in the morning, you're not going to go to work unless you're a public servant of some kind. You may be off tomorrow. But then Tuesday morning, it's back to the daily grind. And you're going to be out there in a secular world. Of course, we know that God is at work in His providence wherever you go. You will never escape the providential care of God. But you can't talk about God in some of the places where you work. And you certainly aren't among God people and your circumstances even when you're home among your things that you're familiar with are sometimes sitting right in a pew in church sometimes your heart just goes flying away from God and you're just overwhelmed with your own difficulties and your own problems this is when you use a psalm to bring yourself back to calibrate your soul to write yourself to set yourself straight and remind yourself that God is not to be pushed to the margins or ignored ever and the psalms are theocentric they're God centered so they're they're human emotions the full range of human emotions and circumstances, but they take us to God and they remind us of God. And so that's why you ought to love your Psalms. If you're a young man, let's say you're a teenage boy, and uh, if I were you, and I did this when I was a teenager, I still remember it, it was a long time ago, but I remember I uh, got myself, you can easily get yourself a copy of the New Testament that will have the Psalms in it. And then when I would ride my bus to school, I would open up the back of my little New Testament and I would read the Psalms and I would take my highlighter and I would highlight parts of the Psalms. I still remember the place where I was riding the school bus when certain Psalms sprung into my heart. And they're a help to me, they're an encouragement. There have been times when I was a long way away from my mom and dad, a long way away from the accountability in my life, and that Psalm just sprung into my heart and I remembered what God told me. And, it, and it's, this is who I am, this is what I believe. God is here present with me. I must obey Him. He loves me. He's guiding me. He's taking care of me. So you want to get the Word of God into your heart. And one of the sweetest ways to do that is in the pictures and the poetry of the Psalms. Like a song, you know how easy it is when you've got a song on your iPod and then all of a sudden you have that lyric memorized? And the reason that God gives, uses so much embellished language in the Bible, like poetry and proverbs and narrative and acrostics and those kind of uh, embellished language or, or creative artistic arrangement, is for the aid of memory. He expects His Word to be remembered by people. And so He's given it to us that way. It's wonderful. Now, you've got to understand, when you look at a psalm, you don't want to look at it like a story. It's not like that. It resists a kind of linear treatment. In other words, you don't want to look at a psalm, and, and, and you, you don't want to assume that the psalm is telling a story. A little song that tells a short story would be a ballad. We don't have ballads in the psalms. A big, long, and this is good for hyperactive people like me, a big, long kind of epic poem, none of them are, they're all short, of course, even Psalm 119, which is long. It isn't a narrative or an epic poem, or, or certainly it's not, a, uh, uh, it's not a ballad or a short story song. As much as we like story songs, that's not the way the psalms are. They're, they're lyric psalms. We'll describe that here. They're lyric poems, lyric poetry. Now, this is where I, one of the reasons why I think I like this, personally, I love the Psalms. Two reasons I know are true. One 
is because they're short and I'm hyperactive. And so uh, this is just true about me. When I was a kid and they would give you that anthology of poetry, and if you're a school teacher, you might want to take notes. You ought to have to take notes if you're a school teacher. Amen? Yeah. You make everybody else do it. Yeah, so you should. No, I'm just being. Yeah, so you take a note. Write this down. You know, you're going to have some students that if they look at a piece and it's too long, they're gone. They're lost. You're not going to get them. You've got to give them something short. So I got the big, you know, complete works of Robert Frost, and I skip all the long poems, and I read all the short ones. Is anybody with me on this? Raise your hand if you're with me. Chuck, you're, I can always count on you, man. My guy right there. Joe Miller. <laughs> all the good guys right here. Three, Chuck, Joe, Chuck, and me. Yeah. It, we like the short stuff because we're hyperactive. So if you meet some kid who's hyperactive, you know, he might have a bright future. But don't make him sit too long. Well, the beautiful thing about these poems is they're lyric poems. They're short. They're pregnant with, they're rich with uh, pictures. And they're evocative in that way. They use a different number of different pictures often to just kind of stimulate the senses. God knew he would have some hyperactive children. And so he gave us these, these short they may, now, all of the psalms are lyric poems. It'd be a, like, sometimes you'll hear people categorize, this is a category of psalm, and here's another one, and all of them are lyric poems. A lyric poem is a short poem that contains thoughts and feelings, and this according to Leland Riken, who writes really well on this, Leland Riken. A lyric poem is a short poem containing the thoughts and feelings of the speaker. Now, in biblical times, and these would be musical and that's why they're called lyrical, because that's the name of an instrument, a lyre. They're often accompanied by an instrument. And so they're, they're, they're little short. That's why, you know, often songs are short, singing. And that's where these are. They're to be sung often. A short poem containing the thoughts and feelings of the speaker attended for to be sung or accompanied by a musical instrument. Again, personal, reflective, and brief there are other kinds of psalms. It's good, for, it's good, I think, when you look at the psalms to kind of ask yourself, what, how do I categorize this psalm? The, the psalms are not arranged in some symmetrical way that you can look and say, okay, these, you know, these 50 psalms are about this, and then it moves to this, and then it moves to this. That's not the way they are, and we, we don't want to kind of force that kind of thing on it. It would be inappropriate to do that. But there are different types, and you can kind of categorize them a bit. Um, let me give you some examples of possible ways to categorize psalms. And maybe the reason to do this is because, again, what's my goal tonight? My goal is to encourage you to use the psalms like a toolbox, to use the psalms like something that you, that like a menu at the restaurant when you need to order something you need. I was going to say a medicine chest, but I don't like the idea of medicine. So it could be like a trainer. And you open the psalm and say, where do I need to go in the psalms? Hey, it's thundering outside. I'm going to go to Psalm 29 while I'm on the way to the basement, you know. And I'm going to read Psalm 29. Or look at the night sky. This is just so beautiful, I can't stand it. Psalm 8. Look at the sunrise, Psalm 19. Oh, God, I'm so sorry I sinned against you, Psalm 51. Right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I need to be, have my confidence in the Bible restored, Psalm 119. I feel like I've sinned against you and that you're going to reject me, Psalm 103. Am I right? Lord, you're, the, the flowers are so beautiful today, Psalm 104. And you just get in the, the Psalms are your, are your toolbox. They're your menu. They're, they're for you. He, they're for your heart. You have lament Psalms. A, a big chunk of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They're, they're Psalms appropriate for people who feel like they have a broken heart and they're weeping. And how many times do we have that? The psalms are full of lament psalms. There are praise psalms. Psalms of praise to God for who God is and worship psalms to be used publicly and privately. And some are to be used, they're specifically to be used in public worship. And others in, used in private worship. And we're allowed to mix those categories if we want to. And we do. And then, of course, there are nature psalms like Psalm 8. Psalm 19, Psalm 29, the thunder psalm that I read you, Psalm 148 is one. Nature psalms. And there are nature elements in many of the psalms. Much about nature is revealed in the psalms. So if you like nature or you long for nature or for beauty, then read the psalms slowly and carefully. You never should speed through the psalms. You should, you should read the psalms and this kind of one of the neat things about it is, again, you're not going to treat them in a linear way like they're going to tell a story. The psalm is going to bring up a theme, if you will. 
And then it's going to return to that theme in different ways. It's going to say the same thing in different ways, or it's going to say opposite things, or it's going to say the same thing using different pictures, metaphors, or similes, or poetic devices. And so it's kind of neat. It's like music that returns to a theme. Like you, you have a favorite you know, movie, a good movie, like Anne of Green Gables, which you all should watch if you haven't. And then it will have that theme. And all through the most pathetic parts of the movie, you know, it's like you'll hear that theme coming back in again, and it will stir up all those things. And so it is with the Psalms. They state a theme, and then they kind of return to the theme in a different way. So it's usually, again, one simple idea that the psalmist is expressing in a number of different ways. So you can almost intuitively get a feeling of a psalm, and if you're a real linear kind of like uh, scientist, this is going to bother you, you know. But, but nonetheless, there are those other types. There are those artistic types out there. And uh, I heard Bill Gothard one time, he had an assistant working with him. And Bill Gothard would say this thing, it always kind of fried my circuits when he said it, but he says he would always say to kids, you need to put your, your mind underneath of your spirit. I'd be like, what? You're going to check your mind? You're not going to think? You're just going to, you know. So I didn't, I didn't know if I agreed with the terminology, but I do think I know what he was talking about. He had an assistant named Andy. just a wonderful guy named Andy Warner. And Andy Warner came out one day and he said, I finally got it. I got my spirit. I got my, my mind under my spirit. Well, I don't know about that. But, what, I think what he, that, but this is what he said then after that. He said, and I now love the Psalms. So here's what I think they were kind of looking for. Uh, I think, and this is the idea, and that is there are places in the Bible that are analytical places. They're, they're series of propositional truths like the epistles arranged like that. There are other places where God just lets a flower burst on our heart or, or thunder in our ears or pictures that just kind of stir us. It's just a big kind of a picture that he uses to impress us with a certain truth. And our spirit is almost like we intuitively understand that. So that's a, you, you may reject that if you're wired a certain way, and that's okay. But I'm just, just uh, trying to help you understand, I think, why God uses different kinds of literature to appeal to us. And so there are nature psalms, lament psalms, praise psalms, worship psalms, nature psalms. There are some subcategories of psalms like royal psalms. Some of them just sing with royalty and kingship, and they're wonderful to read. There are, of course, the penitential psalms, which are wonderful to use in the preparation of the heart when you sinned against God. Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm uh, 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, Psalm 143, penitent psalms. I'm looking at you people. You need these psalms, okay? Because you're sinners. That's why, yeah. We all need them, amen? We all need the penitent psalm. That was an attempt at humor, which you entirely missed, so it was probably really bad humor. So there are also wonderful messianic psalms. A messianic psalm is a psalm that refers to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And there are different kind of subcategories of messianic psalms. Double reference messianic psalms, direct messianic psalms. One of the drop-dead you know, facts that you know you have a messianic psalm in hand is it's quoted in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus. So those are kind of like fun. Those like make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you're like, what is this about? Could this, this looks a lot like Jesus. Hebrews says it is. God the Holy Spirit says it is. Then you're like, oh, now we're on sacred turf. This is about my Savior, the Lord Jesus. Messianic Psalms. There are some just rich things in the Psalms that way. There are, and I love them, don't you, the pilgrim Psalms. See yourself marching up to Zion, you know. Men, women, families going up to Jerusalem, and then the fathers and sons going up the steps of the temple to worship God three times a year. And there's a hymn book for that, the Psalms of Ascent, going up to God in worship. God intended for men to sing. Yeah? God intended for men to sing. Say amen. Yeah. He intended for men to sing. I wish I could find one of those. Back when the Promise Keepers thing was going on, they had, Maranatha had this shirt that came out. Did you see that? It said, real men sing real loud. That's one of the qualifications to be a pastor in this church. If you can't thunder, you can't be a pastor in this church. That's just all there is to it. We never told anybody that before, but you've got to be able to sing to be a pastor in this church. I'm just kidding. I, this, and, but, uh, but there's just something about, isn't there, songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And he's given us a hymn book for that. He's given men and women a hymn book for that. And thank God for the beautiful, uh, the, the beautiful songs that we hear from the ladies too. So you have these pilgrim psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, psalms of ascent, wonderful songs for the road. 
And so if you're ever going somewhere to a Bible conference or you're going somewhere to serve the Lord, it'd be great to go into the hymn book. One of the things I love, you know one of my hobbies is pilfering through the Bible and finding family promises in the Bible. I love to find family promises in the Bible. And what you will notice is in the Pilgrim Psalms, in the Psalms of Ascent, you have many family promises because you have this consciousness of going with your children, going with your sons, father, son, or with your family, traveling and going up to Jerusalem together. And so you have this overwhelming feeling that, man, a man or a woman might get, God, you've been so good to me. My wife is like a fruitful vine by the very sides of my house. My children are like olive plants around my table. This is the way a man is blessed who fears the Lord. He'll see his children and his children children and peace upon Israel. It's just like, can you see that? When we were in the Holy Land, we watched people do the bar mitzvah with their sons. It was, you couldn't watch it without weeping. Because here you have this boy and, and he's just being honored in this special way and they would be making all kinds of wonderful racket singing and music. And depending on what, our guide said, you can listen to the music and tell what part of the world they're coming from. And so they would line up and you would hear this kind of music or you'd hear that kind of music. And then you'd, hear, you'd see this fresh-faced boy, his dad, putting his arm around him and then making their way up. It must have been a little bit like that, to go up to Jerusalem to honor God and to worship God. And there's a hymn book for that. How wonderful. This is a chorus book. I don't know where I got it. Hannah brought it back from, I think, Dale, one of the family members, found for me a copy of a very treasured Two hymn books. They were from Winona Lake, Indiana. When you, years ago, when they had the Bible conference ground in Winona Lake, you would go there and they would give you a little hymn book for the week. It was a little chorus book. It would be hymns and songs and so forth. And it was Moody Week at Winona Lake. And so you all had the old Moody songs that they loved to sing, that Moody Bible is who's famous for singing, and the Great is Thy Faithfulness, and all of those songs by Towner. And in the back, God Bless the School that D.L. Moody founded. And, and uh, I got this treasure in my hand the other day that they had in their attic or their basement or something from Moody Week at Winona Lake. Well, that's the way it was. Okay, we're going to be together for the worship God for the week. Here's your hymn book, man. Let's sing. I don't know how you feel about it. I know there's mixed feelings about it, and it's just extemporaneous illustration, but hey, it's a holiday weekend, so I'm allowed one of these. Um, my brother-in-law wanted me to go with him up to Milwaukee to go to the Promise Keepers, and there were like 10, 20,000 guys, or I don't know what it was. And um, as we walked in, you could just hear the guys singing. You could just hear the thousands of men just singing. And it, I, you know, I think you know enough about me to know I couldn't, I could almost not see my way to my seat because of the thunderous sound of these voices of these guys singing and praising God and giving honor to the Lord. And we may have some questions about that, but I will tell you there's a time and there's a place when God's people are going to sing like thunder. Anyway, I'm off, I'm off the subject. Okay, so back to the heart of things. Um, there are pilgrim psalms. And then there are imprecatory psalms. We'll talk about those. It's a big word, imprecatory psalms. They're the mean, the mean psalms. We'll talk about that. Now let me answer some questions, uh, questions and answers about psalms. And, and uh, we're about to second base here. Okay, questions and answers about psalms. How much of the Bible consists of poetry? Did you know, shockingly, a third of the Bible is poetic in some form? And 75% of the Old Testament is poetic in some form. We have poetic books, but, but they're like Genesis, is lots of, of it is, is arranged poetically. In other words, embellished language or artful language or, or language that uses imagery or metaphor or figures of speech or songs or proverbs. And then, of course, there are the narratives. So you have so much that's narrative and the other parts. In other words, there's, there's very little kind of bland words sitting on the page in the Bible. It's lively language that the Bible gives us. It's, it's poems or it's proverbs with embellished language that's artful and memorable or it's stories that kind of suck us in and, and, and they capture our attention. Now, I have a, a personal theory that you have a, a small amount of didactic or propositional or just in, you know, like maybe the epistles. And a GARBC pastors, and I'm one of them and glad to be one of them, they tend to default to these sections of the Bible because we have been in this great controversy to defend these propositional truths that people are picking away at these propositional truths. So where do we go? We want to go to the epistles, and we want to park there, and we want to say, look right here. This is like, like again, like the horseradish of the Bible. Look what it says here and here and here. And that's not all bad. 
But I do believe that what we ought to do is we ought to just let ourselves go to all the different places of the Bible and deal with those places of the Bible in the different ways that you, in a a way that's appropriate to that kind of, of that kind of uh, genre of literature. Anyway, no no attack on my, on my brothers uh, who are faithfully laboring away like I am trying to encourage people and help people. But what I'm trying to say is we want to do more than just explain the epistles. We want to experience the narratives of the Bible. We want to weep at the poetry of the Bible. We want to sing the songs of the Bible. We want to, we want to grind our way through the uh, uh, imprecatory uh, parts of the Bible. Uh, we, we, want to, we want it all. Are they intended for public or private worship? I think I already answered that. Both. What does the title mean? Book of Praises. Psalms means Book of Praises. We often call the Psalter. What are the intro, it's interesting, you have the little introductory notes, and I wanted to answer a question about that. Have you ever wondered, the little introductory, what are they called? They're called inscriptions, often at the beginning. They could go at the end. Sometimes people think that they're at the end, but nonetheless, they're very old, they're very ancient, and they're probably very accurate, and it can't be established with absolute certainty that they're part of the inspired text of the scripture, but they are reliable and old, and we should kind of respect them. Does that help? The inscriptions are those little descriptions. Sometimes they'll have musical notation, and it's interesting to read commentaries because somebody will say this is what they mean, and somebody else will say this is what they mean, and somebody else will say this is what they mean, and a lot of times it won't be the same. In other words, there's some mystery involved in some of that. Uh, But there are musical notations and other uh, various instructions or inscriptions. Sometimes the inscription of the psalm will tell us a very key, you know, I'm going to, this is like a little special tip I will give you. If you want to understand a psalm or a song of any kind, you ever know how it is? You listen to a song and you go, huh, I wonder what's behind that song. Stumbled across a secular country song this week. I try not to stumble across secular country songs too often. But I stumbled across a secular country song this week. It was a good one. And it was a story about a girl going back home. And it was hard not to cry. She says, like, under that tree, my dog. You probably didn't know this, but my dog's buried under that tree out there. And this is the little bedroom where I learned to play the guitar. And I'm not endorsing everything this girl has done. My kids have warned me about that. But nonetheless, it's a story song. So if you know the story behind a song... It's like, oh, wow, that's meaningful. And the inscription sometimes tells the author or the setting, and now you can go to the other places in the Bible, and you can kind of construct, oh, this is, might have been this, and, and, and that is often a way for that psalm to come to life. You don't want to get too fanciful about it, but you do want to look at those inscriptions and realize that they have value in that way. Now, how can a, how can a poem be a poem if it doesn't rhyme? Did you ever wonder about that? How can it be a poem if it doesn't rhyme, and did they rhyme in Hebrew? You know? So if we knew Hebrew, we would say, oh, that has such a beautiful, you know, it's, it's iambic pentameter with a rhyme at the end. Well, that's not the way the Hebrew poetry works. Now, please don't, please don't hear me saying that I have a clue about what Hebrew poetry is. This is what they tell me, though, okay? That it's more likely to be thought rhyme or certain kinds of parallelism. The poetry of the Bible is rhyming thoughts. And I thought about that. It's kind of interesting. In other words, thoughts that, that play off of one another. This might, a thought might be expressed, and then it might be expanded, or it might be stated positively and then stated negatively in the next line. That's why often you'll see in the Bible, when the, the, in the Psalms and the poetic parts of the Bible sometimes, you'll see things given in lines, because the lines, obviously, they correspond to, to one another. Not to be technical, here's the way I like to say it. Some, you know, in some of the Psalms, for instance, you'll see the line, two different lines, one one after another, they say, they, they, they say the same thing in a different way. In other words, they complement one another. Sometimes it's a parallelism of contrast. This line will say this, this one will contrast, the next line will contrast. Sometimes it will complete or clarify. It'll say it, and then it'll say it in another way, giving some more information. But if you look at the Psalms and you study them that way, there are fancy names for this. If you're like a literature teacher and you love this kind of thing, you can study this. But the idea is sometimes two lines will say the same thing in a different way. Sometimes two lines will contrast each other. Sometimes a second or a third or a fourth line will build up, completing what the first line introduced. And then there are other kind of constructions, kind of like, I like to call out and back constructions. The best way in English I know how to describe this chiastic structure that's really common in the Bible is is like when you're running through the out here in the here on Metro Park, if you're going to run like four miles and you want to end the same place where you started because your car is there and you don't have any friends, this would be my experience. So I'm going to run two miles out and I'm going to run two miles back. And so I'm going to pass the same 
thing. I'm going to see the end one time, aren't I? And everything else I'm going to kind of see twice. Well, that's kind of a lame way of describing it, but it helps you a little bit. This poetic structure is very common in the Bible that is kind of out and back. So the main point's in the middle, not at the beginning, not at the end, but it does have a structure. So you can kind of see these structures in the Bible. Am I losing you on that? It's like, if I understood it better, I could explain it better. But anyway, that's that. And so you have some ideas there, a little bit about the arrangement of the material in the Psalms. Well, what about the mean parts? What about the mean psalms? Um, uh, the imprecatory, calling down judgment, hard-nosed psalms. Now, there are just certain temperaments that love these psalms. You know, I just got a feeling that some folks just have these memorized. And other people, they cringe, it's like nails on a chalkboard. You're like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. I would take that one out if it were up to me. Well, there are things that we want to explain away too simply. And they're, they're mysteries and expressions of God that talk about his awe and his, his justice and his just wrath that we really don't understand because of our own sinfulness. But the imprecatory psalms are psalms calling down appropriate judgment. And what are we to make of those? Well, they're expressions of God's just wrath and his exclusive right to vengeance. And when somebody uses an imprecatory psalm, it's not, I'm going to do this to you. It's, God, you vindicate yourself. You show your justice. And there are times, there are times when this kind of imprecation is appropriate. And we don't have much of a taste for it. We don't have much stomach for it. But there are certain people that really should die in a slow and painful way. Now, that's God's job to figure figure out when that is. Did you ever watch a really, really, a movie that, that was done really, really well, like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? This is off the record. Okay. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, I don't want to like, endorse everything about it, but the bad guy is really bad in that movie. He's really, you're looking at me really funny. It's like the pastor's talking about a movie. So, yeah, this is not, you know, the, anyway, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, and Liberty Valance, you want him to die in that movie, and you don't want him to die fast. You want him to die a slow, agonizing, appropriate death. Well, that's like that emotion of imprecation. God, look how vile this person is. Look how evil they are. Look at the terrible thing they did. In the movie, when Liberty Valance gets shot, you remember what happens? No extra charge here. Liberty Valance gets shot. You guys going to watch this? Because I can like, not tell you. Everybody's at the movie store tonight. Do you have the man who shot Liberty Valance? Pastor said it would be really edifying. <laughs> it's like, they shoot him and he's in the road, you know, and they go, get the doctor, get the doctor. The doctor comes running out and he goes, I need some whiskey here. And so they run out and they give him whiskey and he goes, he, he kicks the body of the guy over and he goes, he's dead. And then he drinks. The <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a picture a little bit, <laughs> a really bad picture but a picture a little bit of like this person is so evil this person is so vile this person is so wrong you say god you do what's right here you pour out your vengeance on him and that and there are parts of the song i'm told you it was the full range of human conditions and the full range of some people just do such evil and wicked things how are the psalms arranged again we talked about that what does selah mean some question about that, but it probably is a musical notation that probably means stop and think about it or rest, stop and think about it. So that's what I do. I stop when I see that and I think about it. There are other musical notations and worship directions in the Psalms that are worth studying, and I bet you Pastor Pine knows these things. So we should probably have him take the next, and, and you got, you get, you've done some work on this, so we should probably like tag team. We could do the big time wrestling, and, but not tonight. We'll, uh, we'll give you a little lead time on that. So I would guess that he has um, studied these things about what those musical notations might mean and so forth. So he would be the guy I would defer to on that. How can I unlock the deeper meaning of a psalm? Just these things quickly here. Um, again, what was the original setting of the psalm? Is there a hint internally about the original setting of the psalm? Like who wrote it and what were the circumstances in which they wrote it? And if you know that, don't read over those things. Pay attention to those things. What was the original setting? Here's another way to unlock a deeper meaning in the psalm. Number one, what was the original setting? Like who wrote it and what were the circumstances? Number two, how, how was it used in the Bible? Was this quoted anywhere else in the Bible, Old Testament or New and then look at the circumstance where it was quoted, and that's helpful. Again, a bit of internal evidence. There's a third thing, and this is very powerful, and that is how have God's people used this psalm 
through the centuries of the church. It's very helpful to do it. In your own family, you can say, well, this meant a lot to my grandmother, you know. But it, it can be uh, the kinds of things where you study church history and you recognize how God's people used a psalm at a certain time. That is a very, very helpful way to see. Now, we change most by imitation. We change most by seeing somebody that we want to be like, that we admire, right? That's, that's what changes we have. How do you learn the language? Language. You don't, your mother doesn't sit you down and do sentence diagramming, thank God, right? And, and, and she doesn't like do all that with you. She says, gada, right? Or she says, if she's evil, she says, mama, mama. But if she's a good mother, she says, dada, say dada, and then you say it because you mimic her. That's the way we learn the English language, by imitation. And that's true with a lot of things you learn by mimicking. And this is where the Psalms come into play in terms of our intimacy with the Lord and what is a, like a portrait of a godly, spiritually minded, godly person. The Psalms are a portrait of how a godly person looks in the circumstances of life considering that God is at the center of everything. And so what do the Psalms say? What portrait do the Psalms give us then? of a godly person. Because when we look at the portrait of the godly person in the Psalms, then we, can, we have a portrait to admire, and it's likely that we'll become more like that. And so the Psalms then help us in the, in aid us in sanctification. So tonight, I want to show you this. And I do owe a special thanks to the Holy Spirit for putting this in the Bible, and for Pastor Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., for giving me the original idea, which I have changed a little bit, but it was his idea. So I needed to tell you that. The godly give praise. For instance, Psalm 100, right? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. The godly, one thing that's true about a godly person is godly people are praiser-type people, right? The godly give praise. I'll give you a little hint. You go from Psalm 145 to 150, this thing just explodes in praise. And to the end, you never get a kick out of it. Every once in a while, I want to get into it. Like, I've already talked about, you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance and drinking and all kinds of things. So I, I need to be very careful here tonight. But, but if you, if you, if you look there in, in, in the Psalms and you get toward the end of the Psalms, you actually have incredible repetition. And you know, every once in a while, we'll say, I don't want to sing songs that repeat themselves. I'm like, I know what you're saying. You want a song that's rich with biblical truth. And I agree. All the pastors agree with that here. But in the Bible, you have psalms and hymns that are rich with spiritual truth, and they're just very dense with theological truth. And they have other parts that just repeat themselves, just say the same wonderful thing over and over. It's there in the Bible. You can read it. But look at Psalm 145. to one. one thing you'll see, Psalm 145 to 150, all of them are this way. But one of the things that's obvious is you cannot masquerade as a godly person if you do not praise God. You brag on God. You praise. You land on your feet in praise. It's one of the things that's a portrait of a godly person. You see that in the Psalms. Also, this is interesting. A godly person is honest about their emotions and honest about their circumstances. And you see these things in these kinds of Psalms where we're crying out and we're saying, God, you're not listening to me. And why is it that the wicked are prospering? You ever feel that way? Well, of course you do. You drive by, you know, this liberal church that doesn't even give the gospel and they spend more on their organ you know, then we have the entire budget for the Guiding Hands Pregnancy Refuge. And you say, God, why is that? Tell me, why is that? It doesn't seem right. And you, because you're a godly person, you love God, and you take that angst, that, that circumstance to God, and then you land on your feet. You're honest, though. You're honest about your circumstances, your emotions, your pain. And this is true about a godly person. A godly person doesn't pretend these things aren't happening. And then... A godly person has a sanctified memory. And so in Psalm 78, as an example, it goes back, I will establish a testimony in Jacob and a law in Israel. In other words, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to use Israel to tell a story. I'm going to use this nation to tell a story. We all have these stories. And these stories are stories we're supposed to remember. You may have an alcoholic dad. You don't want to forget that story. That's a story you should remember. You should remember looking over the lip of the casket. And you should remember thinking to yourself, it doesn't pay to drink that booze. It doesn't pay to be a hard nose. It will come to this. That's a, part of your, that's a bad part of the story. And there may be other parts of the story that are wonderful, that are beautiful, that are exemplary. But uh, godly people have a sanctified memory. And you see this. Psalm 136 is like that and others, many others. They rehearse what's gone on in the past. And so in other words, in other words let's say, for instance, I'm going through a dark valley in my life, and it's really hard. 
and I'm tempted to disobey God and not remember, wait a minute, I've been through dark valleys before. My mom and dad have been through dark valleys. My grandma and grandpa have been through. Dark, those old people that sit there in the church, they, they've been through the dark valleys. They, they tell their stories, and then I'm encouraged. Like, this is, I, I know this is like, does that make sense? And in the book of Acts, you see that repeated, like these stories repeated, and sometimes like, a preacher will just kind of light up, and he'll just go back over the history of Israel, and one, he'll swoop back, and godly people are that way. They have a sanctified memory. Here's another thing about godly people. They, they're growing in righteousness. They're growing. What I mean here is that the trajectory of their life is growing more and more morally fine. Now, what you see, there's a huge theme in the Psalms. If there's a theme, I would see praise as a theme, and I would definitely see this contrast as a theme in the Psalms is introduced right away in Psalm 1, very clear, the righteous and the wicked. You see this very clearly, this antithesis, the righteous and the wicked. Which are you? The righteous are growing in godliness, growing in morality, growing in godly uh, character. And that's true, and that is, uh, you, they, they're growing in their hatred for evil. This would include the imprecatory psalms, their hatred for evil. But they're, they're growing in, in righteousness. The trajectory of their life is morally sound, and they hate evil, and they love good. And then, this is, in the, there are only a few more here. They are continually changing, and, and, and here's the thing about this. If you say, I don't need to change, then you are telling me that you are perfect. If you say the church doesn't need to change at all, then you are, what an arrogant thing to say. Because you're saying our church is perfect right now and we don't need to change anything. No. We need to change right, right along. Everything the Lord tells us to change. We dare not change the things he tells us not to change. There are certain things he tells us, don't you dare change those things. But growth is change, and without growth we're dying. So if we're not changing, we're dying. Well, that's certainly true in the matters of the soul, whether you're ready to hear that in ecclesiastical matters or not, I understand. But in the matters of the soul, we ought to always be taking inventory, always be willing to repent, change. This takes us to these penitential psalms, these penitent psalms. Examine your life, be willing to repent and change. Always changing, always growing. Two more. Godly people do this. They give praise, they're honest, they have a sanctified memory, they're growing in righteousness, they're continually willing to change or repent, and, and then they affirm their reliance on God. They affirm continually their dependence, their reliance on God, like Psalm 62. And finally, and you know this one, they express gratitude. They're thankful. I do need to conclude here because I don't want to torture you for coming out on our holiday weekend, Sunday night, like I asked you to. So let me just kind of close here by mentioning this. What I'm suggesting that you do is the same thing that Jesus did as a practice. They say, you, can, you can read the descriptions of the accounts of the crucifixion of Christ and you realize that when Jesus spoke, he spoke not his own words, but he spoke the very words of God. And the places that he quoted most often were the Psalms. And there are people who believe that Jesus quoted all of Psalm 22 on the cross. Jesus spoke. He was the one who, he is the word, and he was from the beginning. And he didn't have a beginning and when he spoke, he didn't speak in his humanness. He didn't speak his own words, but he spoke his Father's words and his Father's will. It's a great mystery of the unity of the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. And when he was dying on the cross, he was quoting the Psalms. And when you have a crucifixion experience in your life, when you, have, when you go through the crux, the crucible, the pain, the depression, the cancer, the abandonment, the betrayal, the unemployment, the underemployment, the loss of a child, go to the Psalms like Jesus did and let God, the Holy Spirit, take the words of the Psalms and bring comfort to your soul and then tell us about it so that we can also benefit from what the Lord took you through. I'll tell you a story and then I'll be done. We had this family in our church, a young family that got saved years ago. And I was thrilled about it. They were just this young family, these two little beautiful girls, little precious little girls. I was so thrilled about this young, troubled family that got saved. And mom and dad came to the Lord, and they started coming to our church. 
And I was trying to get them, you know, up and going, get them faithful and get them to follow the Lord in baptism and get them to come faithfully to church and, you know, kind of get them rooted in the things of the Lord and get them to be faithful in their attendance and get them to wear out a Bible and so forth. But as, uh, as the weeks went along, kind of a, a tragic circumstance came up and I began to hear that their marriage was struggling in a really bad way. And what made it worse was that there were people in the church that were involved in this kind of little ecclesiastical tug of war, this little kind of like king of the hill pettiness in church. And instead of caring about that couple and the dire circumstance they were in, these people in the church actually were calling through the church membership to try to get people on their side of a church fuss. came to our attention in the parsonage. I came home, I heard, and I was not careful about what I said and I came home for lunch and I just said to Lois, I'm so upset because this couple, they just need people to help them and all they're doing is trying to get them on their side of the church fight. This was years ago when we were young and foolisher. Lois says, I'm going to call that lady and I'm going to tell her. (laughs) I said, don't do that. We were younger and foolisher. So it was back when you had phones on the wall with a cord that plugged into the wall this is a long time ago. Most of you don't remember this. And uh, we had two extensions. We had one upstairs where I was talking to Lois, and then there was one in the kitchen. And I was going back to the office, and I said, don't call her, don't tell her. Don't, you know, she goes, she needs to know that's wrong what she's doing. I said, don't do it. She would have obeyed me today. But back then, I just had a sneaking suspicion she disobeyed me and just called him anyway. So when I walked by the... By the uh, in the kitchen and pulled the phone off the wall and listened. Sure enough, she dialed her up and she was telling her what she needed to hear. I was secretly proud of her. I'm like, you should not have done that. Well, she wouldn't do that today. She's had many occasions and she, you have a more seasoned pastor's wife than those poor people had back then. I said, Lois and I praying about that and just kill, it was killing us. There were other young couples in the church just killing us people we led to the Lord and people that we were wanting to disciple. And you know how it is when you're in a church fuss. It's horrible. Hopefully you never have the experience. Got my car one night, and um, I thought, well, I need to go see him, and I need to try to help him. But when you get into circumstances like that, they're just so impossible that I don't feel any personal confidence that you can help people untangle those messes. So I'm turning the radio off. And the dusk is coming on as I'm driving into Mount Vernon that night. And I was saying, God, would you please help me? Help me help these people. I'm young. I don't know what to tell them. But please help me help them. And so I was nervous about going to see them. I didn't know if they wanted to see me. I, I couldn't bring myself to go up to their house. So I drove around the block a couple of times. And I could see the lights were on. And I prayed, driving around the block, God, help me. And then I finally got myself to park in their driveway, and I got out of the car, and I walked up. And while I'm walking up to the door, I'm, God, help me. Help them. I knock on the door, and the dad comes to the door. He opens the door. He sees me. Oh, Pastor, can I visit with you a little bit tonight? He goes, yeah, step in. Well, those girls, as soon as they saw me, they darted out of the room, which I thought was kind of unusual. Just saw me, and... I heard him saying, the pastor's here. He darted out of the room. And then I started to talk to Dad. It didn't look like he wanted me to sit down, so I just stood and talked with him. And I was trying to get the conversation somewhere where I could help him. And I wasn't really paying attention to what was happening. But the little girls had come back into the room. Finally, when I paid attention to what they were doing, I saw something that I have never been able to forget. It's two beautiful little girls, because the pastor was there, had gone back to their bedroom and they had gotten out their Bibles. And they'd come back out and they lay down on the floor with their little Bibles open like I was going to preach to them or something. And as I drove home that night, I thought, if mom and dad would just go back in their room and if they would just get their Bible and if they would just open up their Bible, God would help them. God would speak to them. I don't know what you're going through or what you're going to go through. I'm not really confident about my counsel, but I'm really confident about this book. And it's a beautiful, wonderful book. It will help you. Pastor.